Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. This is what I want. This is what I need. If you don't have to go, I can set you free. Are you going? Welcome to today's podcast episode. It is a conversation with Kate Dayton on the topic of narcissism. And in particular, we're really diving into what it means to be in a relationship or in orbit, kind of tangled up with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. Kate is a narcissistic abuse specialist. She specializes in helping empaths to rediscover themselves after toxic relationships. During today's podcast episode, Kate unpacks exactly what the terminology narcissist means, what it looks like, how it can feel, how you can begin to recover, and she answers the question of, can a narcissist ever truly change? Let's get into my conversation with Kate Dayton. Kate, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me. I've been really looking forward to it. Oh, me too, Kylie. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm just, I'm really excited to talk about this topic because it's something that I'm really passionate about. And you can see that, like when I came across you on Instagram, I was like, clearly, I mean, obviously this is something that you're so passionate about, you know, sharing your knowledge and your wisdom on. And the thing that we're talking about is narcissism. Mm. Can you share with our listeners what it is that you actually do? in, in yes. the narcissistic field or narcissism yeah. field? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm a narcissistic trauma-informed coach and a, um, a narcissistic abuse specialist. So I specialize in narcissism um, because that's a, a particular type of abuse that's quite insidious um, and a little bit different just to your, your general toxic type relationship. So I specialize in narcissism, but I look at it from a trauma-informed lens. So what this means is that I look at it from a perspective where we, we look at it through trauma. So we know that this abuse causes trauma to the victim, or I like to say survivor, in that it causes overwhelm to their, their nervous system. And there's specific ways that we feel, we react, and, you know, the inability to be able to move on because we're in a trauma response. So that's how I look at it from that trauma-informed lens and looking at it through narcissism. You must just be inundated with people reaching out and getting in touch. I mean, I think you know, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, narcissism wasn't such a popular word, mm. but it seems like it really is just a common word now 
in our vocabulary. So for those listening, how do you define narcissism? Yeah, I think this is a great question. So like you said, it's become such a common term in our society, almost like anxiety, self-care, which I think is great because it allows people to have a knowledge of narcissism. Like you said, we didn't know about this 10, 15 years ago. But it can also be the flip side where, and I see this with a lot of people in my community and clients, where people will say, oh, I've dealt with a narcissist and people give the eye roll. Oh, it's quite casual. Yeah. It's a bit like the old, I'm OCD when you're yeah, not. Yeah. It's, it can be used really flippantly. Exactly. And then often a lot of survivors will hear the term, oh, well, have they got a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder? And we know that most narcissists, 99% of them will never be diagnosed. We've, we've medicalized it. It is a personality disorder. But we know that most narcissists will never get a diagnosis simply because they don't ever think there's anything wrong with them. So they'll never present to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to get that diagnosis. So how I look at a narcissist, we know from a psycho psychologist or a psychiatrist point of view, they diagnose using something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So they've got nine traits that somebody needs to meet. Well, they need to meet five out of those nine traits to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And they're things around, you know, they've got a grandiose sense of self-importance, they have a lack of empathy, they need a lot of excessive admiration, they're arrogant, they're, you know, jealous of others. So there's these nine traits. But what I teach in my community is actually it's, it's far bigger than these nine medicalized traits that we have. You know, they're, they're often passive aggressive, they're childlike, um, there's this gaslighting, which, you know, we can definitely talk about. There's a whole heap of traits outside of these nine traits. For me, the key really with a narcissist, when you're dealing with a narcissist, is the lack of empathy. That's that's really the key. When you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have genuine empathy for others, or it can be faked empathy, we know that they're very good at faking empathy when they need to. But for me, that's really the key. It's this lack of empathy. And what about intention? Does intention come into play with narcissists? Like, I guess what I mean by that is, are they setting out on purpose to cause yeah. damage or is, is the damage a byproduct of their narcissism? Yeah, I love, I love that question. So when we receive the narcissist behavior and some of their behavior, I mean, it's just, it's atrocious. It really is. So we think, of course, I mean, most of my community will say, well, how can I not take it personally? Of course, they're trying to, to hurt me. But actually what we know with a narcissist is, and this could be a little bit controversial, a little bit hard to hear, especially when you've been the victim of narcissistic abuse, but we know that their intention is not really to, to hurt somebody. Their intention is just to get what they want at any cost, but the impact is often so hurtful for us. And then the lack of empathy yeah, on and top the of, of that. The yeah. lack of empathy. And we know that narcissists actually 
have a really core inner wound of shame and what they're doing is they're just trying to protect that inner wound of shame at all times and how they do that is by using this mask or this armour of what we see as narcissistic um, traits. But the impact on us is obviously extremely hurtful. How does someone become a narcissist? Like is someone just born with narcissistic traits or in your opinion, is it something that's fostered like through learned behavior? Um, or again, I guess it's that whole not having needs met or whatever mm-hmm. wound they carry trying to, you know, speak to that. Yes. Yeah, so we know that, well, at, at this stage, we believe that narcissists are not born. We know psychopaths are born and we can have psychopathic narcissists. You know, there's spectrums with sociopaths, narcissists, psychopaths, and they can definitely all cross over into each other. But with narcissists, we know that they're not born. Um, So at this stage, there's never been a gene found. But often people think it's hereditary because we see these patterns within families. But what it tends to be is this pattern of maladaptive behaviours that are passed on because, we, you know, we learn from our parents how they react to situations, how they act in the world. And so it's more this, yeah, this intergenerational trauma that just gets passed on and these maladaptive behaviours. So the current understanding of narcissism is that it is created in childhood. It tends to come from trauma and that doesn't have to be. And the way that I explain trauma is it's an overwhelm to the nervous system. So that can be anything. It's a perception. So it's not necessarily, you know, child abuse, which it it definitely can be, but it's also the perception of, of what happens in that moment. So we know that narcissism is from childhood trauma. Now, this can be from things like having a narcissistic parent themselves, which is often the case. It can be from emotional neglect, not having a parent around who's emotionally available. It can even be from being a parent who is just too overly invested and has that child on a pedestal as the golden child but we need to look at it from a child's perspective that if for example they've been emotionally neglected what does the child think in that moment I'm not good enough just being myself I'm not good enough the same for a child that's been put on a pedestal as the golden child they form that wound of not feeling good enough because unless I perform for my parent I'm not good enough and so what happens is in that moment as a child they think I'm not good enough just being who I am as I was born and so they create this mask of the narcissistic traits which are all of the things that that we see and that actually that false self becomes the new self so the true self as the child that is born as that true self essentially kind of dies off with narcissism and this false self the narcissistic traits or the narcissistic armor becomes the new self and that's that's what we believe is how it's created and hearing you speak then kate about how narcissism can begin to fester for someone you can't help but feel sad You can't help but feel sad for the person who is going through that. But I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because then as adults and particularly as adult women, we often kind of look past some behaviors because we can see the sadness. And so sometimes 
it's easy to go, okay, yes, this is hurting me and it's causing me damage and I can see that they're not necessarily a good person, quote unquote, but I can see it comes from a wounded place. So I'm going to fix this person. And is it true that people who have like extra empathy are attracted to narcissists or vice versa? Narcissists are attracted to people who have extra empathy for that reason. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like a magnet to each other. So we know that most people that are in a relationship with a narcissist are empaths and and empaths really mean that you feel other people's emotions like it's your own and so but even further to that is that we have these codependent traits so we know that and codependency really means that we have a bit of a self-love deficit so we might have all these inner core wounds but we're we're aware of them a narcissist isn't um so yeah, so we have this codependency where we have this bit of a self-love deficit. We look externally for this validation. And so, and that's a real flame for a narcissist. They love that because they look to use other people and their emotional supply to feel good. And as a codependent, we look externally for other people's validation in order to feel good. So it's just an absolute magnet to each other. What we want to do is get people to a state of being no longer codependent because all codependents are empaths, but not all empaths are codependent. There's a difference. And we want to get people to a place where they are what we call empowered empaths. And the key to that is just having really strong, tight boundaries because as an empath, that is a true gift. They're our natural healers in the world. It's it's an absolute gift, but we need them to be empowered because if they're not, then they're, they're going into that codependent side and that's when a narcissist can come in and really sap off their energy. And for someone who might be listening and thinking, you know what, I sometimes refer to my partner as a narcissist and they're kind of running through scenarios in their mind right now. I know we've touched on empathy and intention, but what are some of the ways that someone might identify that perhaps they are in relationship with a narcissist? Mm. So the big, the big ones for me are, so the first thing I always ask my clients is, do you feel like you're walking on eggshells in your relationship? Oh, you guys can't see me, but I've just like <laughs> led back from the computer and I'm like nodding furiously. Oh, yes, I, I, I'm familiar with that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> me too, me too. When we feel like we are walking on eggshells in our relationship, that is a huge red flag that we are potentially in a relationship with somebody who is toxic and who is potentially high on the narcissistic trait spectrum. 
So that's the first thing. The other thing that I often ask people is, are you able to be your authentic self? So this goes hand in hand with the walking on eggshells part. Because if you can't be your true self in a relationship, that's another really big red flag. And I think sometimes we don't even know what our true self is Mm -hmm. until we're out of it because it's not now, you know, I know for some people with that distance, you can look back and go, oh, oh my gosh, I was racing around the house, making everything perfect before that person got home. Or I was making sure that, you know, everything was in a row before. Like, I, I think sometimes you don't know it when you're in it. You've got to have that distance and that space and I guess that awareness to go, oh, hang on, that actually wasn't my authentic self. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, I think, leads into the the gaslighting, which is another huge factor of these relationships, is that there's so much gaslighting, which is a huge trait of a narcissism. They invalidate the victim's reality. They, They make you feel like you're going crazy and you can't trust your own reality. And it's, you know, sayings like you're oversensitive, I'm just joking, or you're a drama queen, oh, not this again. And so you just don't know whether you're upwards, sidewards, you have no idea what you think, feel. Like you said, you have no idea who your authentic self is because you're no longer able to trust in, in what you feel or think because of the gaslighting. Yeah. Sorry. I think I cut you off as well. You were saying walking on eggshells, authentic self. What are some other things people could um, begin to notice if they're in a relationship with someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah. Lack of empathy. This is a big one. So the way I describe it, and you know, I have been in a relationship where I've been with a narcissist, but it's almost like the lack of empathy and, and the example that I like to use is, you know, you could be crying and completely downtrodden and, you know, feeling awful about yourself or something, a situation that they've put you in. And it's almost like they look at you like they're watching paint dry. There's just nothing. There's no emotion. There's no feeling. Dead behind the eyes. Behind the eyes. The eyes look dead because there is there is no ability to have any empathy for people and this is this is a big red flag for being with a narcissist you might see it as an example of to yourself they don't give you any empathy at all also they don't have any empathy for just social situations things that are happening with other people things that are happening in the media and in the world there's just no emotion behind there there's no empathy to to what people's circumstances are or what they may be going through that's yeah that's a big telltale sign that you're with a narcissist it might also not be highlighted until people have kids right because it's Mm -hmm. like oh then when you see how they respond to sick like sick kids you know say your child's vomiting that sort of thing that can be a real sign of like oh that person might might be having you know might be a narcissist because they just don't feel anything when their own kids are sick Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as women, it's really highlighted when you do have children with someone who's a narcissist because of those things. You need to be selfless as a parent. You need to not put yourself first. And as a narcissist, they're incapable of doing that. I mean, they're number one um, at, at all costs. So, 
a sick child, yeah, absolutely. That's not fitting into their narrative of putting themselves first and also putting that narrative around having this perfect life and everything just going along to plan as how they see fit, the sick child or just children in general. I mean, children are hard. So narcissists just don't cope at all when it comes to children because they see children as an extension of themselves. They don't see them as being a separate entity and a separate person. So when the child doesn't perform how they like, then they receive the wrath or the, the other parent receives the wrath of the narcissist. Which is that generational trauma loop, right? Yeah. That's what they've experienced. And yeah, just as you were speaking, then I'm, I'm sitting here smiling and nodding. And that's a weird response to have because it's a sensitive topic. But you can just feel so validated when you hear things out loud. Yeah. And I... I can just so clearly connect so many dots in different situations where it's like a parent will be upset at the way that a child dresses because they do think that that's an extension of themselves, but not have that empathy to understand that child has chosen that outfit or it's important to them because it's just all about what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. It's all about the external appearance to everybody else. And that child is not a separate entity to them and they must perform at all costs. Otherwise, yeah, they, they get the wrath of the narcissist. What sort of things can happen for people who are in relationship with a narcissist? I guess when I say things like what sort of effect does it have on our mental health? Yeah, huge. It, it affects all parts of your well-being. So we know, like I said, it is trauma. This is abuse. We need to label it for what it is. It's abuse and abuse causes trauma. So we go into a trauma response, which means that we're often in a case of fight or flight. So we feel anxious all the time. We may feel angry. That's very common after we come out of these relationships and we sort of work out what we've been in, we become really angry. We also can even go further into the trauma response. Now, it's really important for, for women and, you know, and men as well, this happens to men, to understand that this trauma response that we have is completely involuntary. It's, it's out of our control. And a lot of, a lot of the times we feel so much shame and guilt about how we feel it's just these relationships from from the perspective of the survivor is just filled with shame and guilt. But understanding that how we feel in these relationships, in them and out of them, is not our fault because we're in a trauma response. And so it's it's involuntary. It's our nervous system's way of trying to keep us safe from the pain. So, yeah, anxiety, anger, adrenaline, always feeling like we're pumped up. But then even after years of this abuse, or it doesn't even have to be years sometimes, but just prolonged abuse, we go even further into a trauma response. And this is where we start to feel things like depression, numbness, nothing at all, disassociation. I often see people, they're able to retell their story and it's often really horrific abuse. And they tell it like and I know I was in this situation too, you tell it like you're telling just a story, somebody else's story. There's no emotion behind it and that's because you're so far into the trauma response that you've disassociated, you've numbed out. 
which is a really common thing for all sorts of abuse from what I understand. And again, Mm -hmm. my understanding is limited. I have no qualifications in the space. I've just heard in other podcasts, you know, particularly in true crime podcasts where cases are being analyzed with domestic violence and the police officers are underacting because the victim survivor is very monotone. So they think, oh, this person isn't really distressed. It's not really a serious situation. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded of there was a documentary recently, I think it's called I Shot My Father or I, I Just Killed My Father, something yes. like that. And it was a teenage boy and he was just so monotone and so flat and lifeless in recounting his experience. And I think the police officers almost took that like, oh, he's a psychopath. But really, this poor kid was just broken down and abused, like so, so abused throughout his whole childhood that, yeah, he just disassociated mm-hmm. from what was happening. And you can just flatline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is pretty much as low as you can go in the trauma response. And it's your nervous system's way of trying to protect you. And the way I I really love to explain it within an animal kingdom type situation because I think people can then really understand it and realise it's not their fault for how they feel. So if you think about, say, an impala in Africa and they're chewing on the grass and they feel happy and calm and peaceful and then a lion jumps out and starts chasing them, Their trauma response kicks in automatically, involuntarily. They don't even have to think and they're going to fight or flight. They start to run. We know it tends to be flight then fight and they start to run. The lion catches them and they start to fight. They don't even have to think about what they're doing. The lion catches them and their nervous system says, oh, this is far too dangerous. What am I going to do? I'm going to play dead. And that's what the impala does. It plays dead and it just lies there in the hope that the lion might think, well, this is strange and and let go. And then it can run off. And this is how our nervous system functions in trauma, in any traumatic experience, whether that's narcissistic abuse or any other trauma, is that it, it works involuntarily. It takes us into fight or flight. And then eventually when it's just far too dangerous, it goes into that disassociation and the freeze. And when someone reaches that point of disassociation and freezing and for lack of a better expression, begins to kind of play dead in their own life just to avoid things, does that actually help in terms of dialing back the narcissism that they're experiencing? Like, is that a coping mechanism as well? Such as if I just detach, this person's going to come at me less, they're going to try and bring me down less. Like, is it a way of um, dialing back their behaviors as well? I guess what I'm asking is, because if we keep springing back up, if we keep popping back up and they keep knocking us back down, does us springing back up encourage them? to keep knocking us back down. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good good way of, of looking at it. And I think probably subconsciously that's exactly what our nervous system is doing is, is playing dead, shutting us down so that it not only numbs out the pain of what we're experiencing, but also in an attempt like the lion, they might let go. <laughs> so I think definitely it's a subconscious thing to try and keep us safe and, and dial down that abuse. Whether it works or not, Probably not. We know that narcissists are just relentless in their abuse and they actually really thrive 
on that emotional supply where you're as low as you can go, unfortunately for a narcissist, that really fuels their fire as well. It gives them that narcissistic supply that they crave. There's so much control in it as well, isn't there? Yeah. And it can be so hard to try and take back control because there's just sometimes you just can't. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like you can't. Yeah, absolutely. And the biggest thing that I see in my community is it's the chipping away of the self-esteem and it's the chipping away of your own self-worth. And so when you don't even know who you are anymore and you've got this lack of self-worth, a lot of survivors actually start to believe maybe I am worthy of this abuse, maybe I deserve it, which is a really sad place to be in but it's a really real place that a lot of survivors find themselves in and it's not their fault. It's absolutely not their fault. They've been in just so much trauma and abuse that they've just been so downtrodden. What are some things that people can do for those who are listening right now who perhaps are in a relationship like this or perhaps have just left one? What are some realistic tangible things that they can take away from this conversation yeah I and I know that's a big question because this is what you do you help people in this situation yeah I mean I do obviously you know I'm a therapist in this area but not everybody can afford a therapist and I'm really aware of that and it's just my mission to be able to help people as much as I can just in general um, to be able to heal I think the biggest thing the start is to understand that it wasn't their fault. As we touched on before, there's just so much shame and guilt around these relationships and often the survivors blame themselves. They feel that in some ways maybe they weren't enough and maybe they deserved what what went on. And so getting them to understand that this wasn't your fault, it's it's this abuse happened to you but it didn't happen because of you and there's a difference and getting people to understand that you are enough and there's nothing you could have done to prevent this abuse. And I often say to my clients, look, if I was replaced and put into that relationship, they would treat me exactly the same way. So understanding it's not your fault is the first big step. And treating yourself with compassion and kindness as well. And, you know, we talk about self-care all the time. You know, it's, it's a big buzzword, but this is really crucial in these relationships. We've been in a relationship where we've lost our self-worth. We've been giving to another person all the time at expense of our own self-worth. So it's really important for survivors to come back to start to be kind to themselves, to give themselves compassion. If they're in that trauma response and they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed, no shame, no guilt, just allowing yourself with compassion to feel whatever you're feeling in that moment and understanding that it's not your fault, I think is a really big step in the beginning. And it's a really difficult step if you've been with someone for so long who has continually invalidated your experience, it's really hard. And it's such a simple concept, but it can be so incredibly challenging. It's so hard. Even with my clients, I'll often in the first session say to them, I want you to go away and I want you to write down 50 amazing things about yourself. 
And that's a really difficult exercise to do because often they'll come back, they're like, I, I, don't, I don't know, that took me so long. They've been so invalidated for so long. They don't know who they are anymore. They feel worthless. They feel like they're not enough. So it's just really those baby steps to start to build up that self-worth and believe that you're worthy of it. If someone is about to separate from a narcissist, what sort of behaviours might they see during that separation process? Yeah, so the, the narcissist can really ramp up their abuse when you leave, okay? So we know that and we know that if it is a physically abusive relationship, which can sometimes go hand in hand, we know that the first seven days of somebody leaving can be, you know, quite dangerous. So, you know, if you are in that situation, you need to make sure that you've got safeguarding issues in place and making sure that you're in a place that's safe. But if it's not those issues, then we can expect that the narcissist will will ramp up their abuse um, because they feel like they're losing control because it's all about control with a narcissist. So it's really crucial in those early beginning parts to have boundaries set up boundaries around how they can contact you when they can contact you so that they're not bombarding you with text messages and all those sorts of things and you know I really recommend to people setting up what we call extreme modified contact we know that often with narcissists if we share children we can't go no contact but we can go very modified extreme contact because your well-being and your mental health is paramount in those early days and setting up those boundaries for yourself so you can do the healing that you need to do is going to be crucial. It's the best gift that you can give yourself and also if you have children to the children as well. And it can be a journey as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. And, you know, we make mistakes. I made mistakes, you know, in those early beginnings we you know we often get text messages and we just want to fire back and defend ourselves because the narcissist has just triggered us um, maybe triggered some wounds that we might have there about not feeling good enough and so we just want to go into to defense mode but understanding that for a narcissist any emotional supply that we give them whether that's positive or negative is fuel to their fire so we really want to try and disengage as much as we can, which is really which hard is, in the beginning. Yeah, and it just feels so incredibly unfair. It does. Like I, th- I think that's one of the things that just feels like, why? Why do I have to be the adult one here? Absolutely. Where's the justice? It often mm. feels like there is no justice. Where's the karma? How do they yes. sort of just get to move on like nothing happened and paint me as the bad person? And there doesn't seem to be any consequences for them. So complex. But you obviously work in this space and I imagine you've seen some incredible transformations with people that you work with, you know, who have come to you, you know, probably as a shell of themselves to begin with. But then over time, they do emerge a better, brighter, stronger, happier version of themselves. Like I think it's important that we stress to people it doesn't have to define you and it, it isn't your death sentence No, it's absolutely not. And most of my clients, most of the people who have been through narcissistic abuse come out with complex PTSD, okay? Most of them have that. Complex PTSD is where it's PTSD 
but it happens over a number of times. Okay, so it's not like one event that happens. It's not a car crash. It's, it's not the, a car crash. It's continual it's chipping death. away. It's the chipping away that causes this complex PTSD, and most people have signs of that. But it doesn't. It's not a life sentence. And I say this to my clients. You know, clients come to me. They're broken. They're just the, the number one thing I hear actually is that they feel stuck. They feel really stuck. They feel like they're just on repeat. They're ruminating over what happened. And to see them emerge and, and not feel so stuck anymore, I mean, it's just it's an absolute blessing to be able to imagine. do that. Yeah. I feel like I could talk with you for hours and hours on this topic and I actually think it would be a really rich conversation if we turned the microphones off and you and I could just like spew everything out that wasn't being recorded <laughs> over a wine and we'd just be like, yes, 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 yes. But you and I are actually going to record a second episode where we answer questions, where, where you answer questions that have been submitted from our listeners. So we'll wrap this first part of our conversation up here, Kate, even though I feel like I could just speak with you for hours. Where can people find you? I know that our listeners are going to want to reach out and learn more about the services you offer. So perhaps if you could just speak to that for us, that would be brilliant. Yeah, sure. So the best place to find me is on Instagram. So it's at Kate A. Dayton. And you can either just send me a message. There's also a a link on there as well on my bio where you can book in a one-off session or you can join one of my packages that I have. And I would, you know, absolutely love to hear from anybody that is feeling really stuck and feeling broken and knowing that it's not just time. I have a lot of clients who come to me many years down the track. It's not just in that initial phase. You can become stuck for for many years so there yeah I just want people to know it's not a life sentence it doesn't always have to be like this there is hope what an exciting time to be alive when we can connect with people who can really be those tethers when we're going through challenging times so I'll make sure all of your details are included in our show notes so that people get the correct spelling and they can easily click your Instagram handle in the show notes because you do have a really informative Instagram account. So I can't encourage our listeners enough to jump over and hit follow. And as I said, you and I are going to continue this conversation, but we'll wrap part one up here. Thank you. Don't have to go, I can set you free Are you gonna 